It's when the seasonal depression is hitting hardest. It's right after the holidays when you're tired and you're broke and you're sad. It's just, it's not a good time to be making big life changes, in my opinion. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep It Fictional, the podcast from the Port Moody Public Library. My name is Sadie and I will be your host. Today I am joined by my book friends, Virginia and Al. So the holidays are over. The Christmas lights have slowly come down across the city. The chocolate and Christmas cookies have finally been eaten. And we are well into the new year. Now, this is often a time that people use to focus on the year ahead, make some new goals, refocus their energies on becoming the best version of themselves that they can be. However, we at Keep It Fictional, well, we always enjoy being just a little bit different from everybody else. And so today, our topic is going to be looking at something that is not often associated with the start of a new year. Maybe sometimes, but not often. And that is murder. Each of my book friends has brought a book that has murder, I think, in the title of it. I think we all managed to get one with murder in the title. Now, before we actually get into the books, I'm curious to know, was this an easy topic for my book friends? I picked the topic uh, for this one actually before I had a book in mind, which does not always happen when I pick topics. Um, but I actually found one that I wanted to read quite easily, and I'll get into that a little bit more when I tell you about my book. But did uh, Al and Virginia have a similar experience, or was it a bit more of a challenge for you? Absolutely a challenge, Sadie. To the point that I had to ask Sadie uh, ahead of time for permission to cheat, to seek if Sadie would accept synonyms of murder. And Sadie very generously said yes. And in the end, I didn't have to cheat. But uh, yeah, it was hard. I think because like I'm just not in the mood for like a mystery. And very often like there's books that has murder in them, but they don't often have murder in the title, whereas a lot of mystery titles often do. And I just didn't really want to. So yeah, so it was hard, but I did find one. So all works out. How about you, Al? Actually, for me, it was fairly easy, mostly because I had seen a book on our new bookshelf that the title intrigued me and it happened to have murder in the title. So I was just lucky that there was a book that was already on my radar that fit the prompt. All right. Well, thank you both for sharing. I'm sorry, Virginia, that it was a bit more of a struggle for you. I was surprised, actually, but I guess you're right. When you read like thrillers, they don't always have murder in the title or they don't. Yeah. So that that makes sense if you weren't kind of into wanting that mystery aspect. All right. Well, why don't we get right into the books? We're going to start with me today. And uh, as I said, when I picked this topic, I didn't actually have something in mind. And it was actually when I was looking for books for one of our holiday book bundles that I saw this book on the shelf and I knew that I wanted to read it. I'd be very curious to hear if the person who got this book in their holiday book bundle uh, listens to the podcast. I'm curious to know what you thought of the book. 
So this is written by an author that I've really enjoyed in the past. I read a lot of their back catalog, uh, not everything, but a lot of it. And I honestly didn't even know that this one existed until I saw it on our shelf. The book that I will be talking about is The Murders at Fleet House by Lucinda Riley. Lucinda Riley, uh, who passed away in 2021, actually, is most well-known for her Seven Sisters series. And uh, I talked about that one a couple months back on the podcast. And for the most part, her books are kind of fit more into the historical fiction genre. They often have just a, a hint of mystery, but they are definitely not mystery books. However, The Murders at Fleet House falls very firmly into the crime mystery thriller genre. Uh, so this is actually a brand new genre for Lucinda Riley. She had never written in before. So our story follows former detective inspector Jasmine Jazz Hunter. Seven months ago, her entire life imploded when she learned that her husband and colleague at Scotland Yard, Patrick, had been cheating on her for months, if not longer, with another young detective. Now, it seems that Jazz was the last to find out, with most of her colleagues and even her boss already being aware of what was happening and yet, for some reason, saying absolutely nothing to her. So when Jazz does finally find out, she does the most sensible thing she can think of. She mails in a hasty, scribbled resignation letter and runs away to Italy. Now, while the sun does do her some good, as does the distance from Patrick, she recently has returned to England bought a small cottage in Norfolk and decided that it is time to pursue her first passion, painting. However, her idyllic new life gets very rudely interrupted only a few days after she moves into her small cottage. When her former boss shows up unannounced, begging her to come back to Scotland Yard. Well, her immediate answer is no, absolutely not. Her boss, Norton, eventually convinces her to take on a case only a few miles from where she's now living, promising that, at least for now, she doesn't actually have to go back to London. So Jazz drags herself down to St. Stephen's Boarding School in Fulcham to look into the death of student Charlie Cavendish. It was originally thought that Charlie died from complications with his epilepsy, and this is something that he has suffered from since he was a child and still takes daily medication for. However, once the autopsy had been completed, it was determined that Charlie actually died from an anaphylactic reaction to aspirin, which he was aware he had been allergic to for his entire life. Now, it seems like an open and shut case. Accidentally took the wrong medication. Charlie didn't realize what he was taking and unfortunately died. However, his high-profile lawyer father has insisted that things be looked into just a little bit more closely. So Jazz, along with her former Scotland Yard Sergeant, Alistair Miles, begins to look into the life of Charlie Cavendish. She's trying to figure out how exactly a 17-year-old who'd been allergic to aspirin since he was a child and had always been very, very careful about not taking any could have accidentally taken two tablets? Well, the answer, Jazz begins to realize, is he didn't. Someone murdered him by switching his daily epilepsy tablets with almost identical-looking aspirin. But who had access to Charlie's room in Fleet House that night? And, and who had a knowledge of his aspirin allergy? 
Well, as it turns out, most of the other students knew of his allergy and many of their parents and all of his teachers and his housemaster, Sebastian Fredericks, the house matron, and a smattering of other staff at St. Stephen's. Jazz quickly realizes that that line of inquiry is not going to be successful. So instead, Jazz starts to look into Charlie's life. He was a young, popular young man with a group of friends and a girlfriend. True, he never really saw eye to eye with his father, who was insisting that Charlie go directly to university and follow him into law instead of taking a gap year. But I mean, honestly, what teenager doesn't disagree with their parents about their future at some point? So who really had reason, motive to want Charlie dead? Well, once again, as it turns out, a fair number of people. Well, Charlie did have a girlfriend and a good group of friends and was well-liked amongst them. He was also an arrogant bully who was often seen harassing the younger boys in Fleet House. So Jazz is now trying to determine her next line of investigation to see if maybe she could somehow possibly narrow down her suspect list just a little bit. When there's another death discovered, Hugh Daneman, the soft-spoken Latin tutor, and he's found dead in his cottage on the school grounds. While there doesn't appear to be any foul play, the more Jazz starts to look into his life, the more she realizes that Charlie and Hugh's deaths and also their lives may be linked. She starts to look more into Hugh's life uh, when once again, her investigation is interrupted. This time, a younger student from Fleet House, Rory Millar, suddenly goes missing. The fact that Rory was one of Charlie's most common victim makes Jazz start to take a closer look, not just at Rory, but also his whole family and what connections they may have to Charlie Cavendish, Hugh Daneman, and Fleet House. With new evidence and confessions coming forward, an ex-husband who shows up out of the blue wanting to talk to Jazz about what happened, and a looming deadline of having to shut down St. Stephen's School for Good, Jazz is put into a very difficult position and finds herself more and more wishing that she had just stayed in her cozy cottage to paint. So this is an interesting book for a couple of reasons. Lucinda Riley wrote this book back in 2006, and she had planned to publish it after she had finished her Seven Sisters series. For those who read that series, uh, you might be aware as well, um, she passed away before the Seven Sisters series was finished. It was finished by her son, Harry Whitaker, stepping in and doing some of the writing in the final book. Um, however, she never also got the chance to publish Murders at Fleet House. This also meant that she never had the chance to go through the inevitable rewrites that accompany the publishing of a book. And so when her son, Harry Whitaker, decided to go ahead and publish this book, he actually made the decision to keep the text as it was when Riley had originally written it. There was some editorial work done to it, but very, very minimal. And I think that knowing this going into the book, it was quite obvious in places that this was not necessarily a completely finished work. It felt like Riley had laid out the structure of her story. She had created the connections between her characters, the reveals that she wanted to make, and she'd written them, but she never got a chance to kind of fully flesh them out and refine them. And so some of the story didn't always seem to move as seamlessly and connect as successfully as I know Lucinda Riley is able to do in her writing. Uh, the other interesting thing is, as I mentioned, 
this is Riley's first foray into contemporary crime fiction. And so I think that the fact that she wasn't able to tweak things before publishing or even continue on with the series to fine tune the writing in a new genre was unfortunate. All that being said, I did still really enjoy this book. My favorite part about reading mystery novels is trying to figure out who did it along with the detectives. I think a lot of people enjoy that. And this book had a lot of opportunity for that. There's a lot of twists and red herrings as well that made it a more interesting read. True to form, Lucinda Riley included some historical elements to the story, which I'm always drawn into and definitely helped the book feel more like her other books, which I've all really enjoyed. I say that if you're a fan of British crime fiction or a fan of Lucinda Riley or just looking for a relatively mild murder story, then The Murders at Fleet House by Lucinda Riley would be great. All right. Well, Virginia, you were able to find a book with murder in the title. So why don't you tell us what book you selected today? All right. So the one that I end up picking is Murder in the Age of Enlightenment. This is a collection of short stories by Ryunosuke Akutagawa and translated by Brian Karenik. Akutagawa, I think, would be quite a familiar name to everybody. He's an iconic legend in Japanese literature, considered to be the master of Japanese short stories. Also said to be the most popular and well-known Japanese author outside of Japan until a certain Haruki Murakami came along. You may also have seen his name on books that are translated because a very prestigious literary prize in Japan is named after him. And many of the books that we have mentioned on this show has been nominated or has won the uh, Akutagawa Prize, including Harlequin Butterfly that I talked about a few weeks ago on the most anticipated episodes and many more that my book friends have mentioned before. Many people also may have come to know Akutagawa because of the famous, critically acclaimed, award-winning Akira Kurosawa's movie Rashomon, and more on that a little bit later. And of course, these days, I don't know if Al is a fan of this, but speaking of Rashomon, you probably would know Akutagawa as the dangerous member of Port Mafia from Bungo Stray Dogs. Did I start reading all these Japanese masters because of a manga and an anime? I absolutely did. And you are more than welcome to judge me on that because I certainly judge me on that. So that is Akutagawa. So Murder in the Age of Enlightenment, this is a collection published by Pushkin. And I would say if you were to start reading Akutagawa, and I really certainly hope you do, you'll probably start with the Penguin edition translated by Jay Rubin and also really feature uh, an introduction by Murakami himself. So this is Rashomon and 17 other stories. This is probably the one that most people would start with. And I, I would recommend that one too, just because it's got a really good short timeline and biography of Akutagawa. So you kind of get to know him a little bit more. And from Murakami's introduction, you kind of see the significance of this writer's contribution to Japanese literature and why he's still so important to many of the writers of contemporary Japanese literature. Jay Rubin's selection is also divided the stories up into different categories. So you can see the different periods and different phases of Akutagawa's writing life and see the different kinds of story and see his range. And as Ruben said himself, he tried to pick stories and some of them including ones that may not be as well known because he wanted to present a more shocking, more imaginative and 
funnier Akutagawa that many people know him as. And I think he really definitely did that. There are some stories in there just like absolutely hilarious and I wasn't expecting it at all. So it was just a delightful, delightful collection. But it doesn't have the word murder in it. So that's why we're talking about this other collection is that that not only has the word murder in the title, but also has quite a few murders in the stories also. This collection starts with The Spider's Thread, which is one of the stories that Murakami said, if you go to school in Japan, you probably have read it as a child. And there's a few stories that he said that like, you know, it's, it's kind of like the staple that you read in school. And Spider's Thread is one of them. And this is a story about Lord Buddha Shakyamuni, who is in heaven taking a stroll one day and looking down from the white fluffy clouds down into the deepest level of hell. And there he see all the souls getting tortured and he recognized a thief named Kandata. Kandata has done many bad things, so that's why he is down there. But he remembers, you know what, Kandata actually has done one deed of kindness one time decided not to kill a spider because he recognizes that all lives are valuable, have value in it. So our Lord thought, yeah, you know what? Maybe, maybe we'll give him a chance. Seems like he deserves a chance to get out of hell. So it so happens that there is a spider thread that is just hanging there. So he decides to dangle this spider thread all the way down to hell in front of Kandata to give him a chance of salvation. But can Kandata take this? Can he actually climb, literally climb out of hell using this spider thread? Well, that's up to Kandata. The second story in this collection is called Inner Grove, or you may know it as an Inner Bamboo Grove. That is the story that the movie Rashomon is actually based on, even though Rashomon is the title of a different Akutagawa story, and that provides the setting of the movie, but the actual story is actually adapted from this story called Inner Grove or Inner Bamboo Grove. I mean, Rashomon clearly sounds a lot cooler as a movie title. Anyway, so this is, I would say, a masterful storytelling, especially if you're someone who loves to see an author manipulate the story by presenting you different perspectives and different points of view. Here we have a murder. This murder is being told from seven different people. And all these people have a different believe, I guess, or like at least a different telling of what actually happens, including the spirit of the guy who got murdered. You don't only have one, potentially one unreliable narrator, you have like a bunch of them. And it's just the way as a reader, you're trying to see how Akutagawa like manipulate all that and playing with all the perspectives. It is just so much fun and it is stunning. I love it. And it's also like a really, really good story to kind of look at like how horrible people can be. Speaking of that, the next story, which is Hellscreen, many people believe that if there is one Akutagawa story that should be preserved, many critics will agree that it's probably Hellscreen. Hellscreen is a story about a artist named Yoshihide. And Yoshihide is a despicable man, like everybody hates him. And he's also super arrogant because even though everybody hates him, everybody has to agree that he is a really, really good artist. He does really, really good art. And they are just so good that everybody has to begrudgingly admit that he is good. And that doesn't help his ego. 
when Yoshihide was commissioned by the Lordship to create this new art, the Lord wants a folding screen and he wants to have the different scenes from the seven levels of hell depicted on this folding screen. And that's what Yoshihide was asked to do. Now, there's a one weird thing about Yoshihide is that he can only draw things that he has seen before. So rumor has it, for example, that one time when he walked by and he saw a corpse on the road, instead of alerting the authority or seeing if the guy is okay, he just stood there and he watched and he observed because he knows that one day he's going to want to paint a dead body. So he needs to figure out how this dead body looks like. And that's kind of what he does. He can only draw things that he has seen before. So in order to depict the scenes of hell, what lengths would Yoshihide go to do that? Obviously, he may not have seen some of the things that he can imagine happening in hell. What will he do to get that? Those are probably some of Akutagawa's most famous story. And there's a few other ones in here. The last story, Cogwheels, or it could be known as Spinning Gears in the other translation, is sort of more, more autobiographical stories. And these are some of the stories that Akutagawa wrote later in life when his mental health is deteriorating and he is having a lot of hard time living the day-to-day. -day. And he depended a lot on drugs to help him get through the day. And his mother supposedly has gone mad. And throughout his whole life, Akutagawa believed that like that madness has passed on to him and that one day he will also go mad. And so if you want to get to know Akutagawa, even of course, he kind of used a different name as a character, but it is really like his life. And it's some of the more kind of maybe depressing stories to read about closer to the end. So this collection also has that as a content warning. I think what makes a story still relevant, you know, a hundred years later, Akutagawa was born like at the end of the 19th century is of course the crafts and the skills of that writer. Um, this is like a master, but also I think it's the ability to understand and capture human nature and the human psyche. Those insights that he has, I mean, those are universal. It doesn't matter like, you know, when you're reading them, it's still relevant. And I think more importantly, resonate years and years later. Paraphrasing Ruben and Murakami, this is an offer also of national stature because his story is also like, reacts to the times that he lives in and the state of the country that he lives in at that point. And you can tell that he has kind of thought really deeply about that and uses his writing to wrestle with some of those conflicting ideals and values um, as Japan was opening up more to the Western world. There's a lot of like influences from the West that he's kind of dealing with and kind of like thinking about like how does that reconcile with some of the, the values of his country. And like Ruben said, Akutawa is a surprisingly funny person. In the other collection, there's two of my favorite stories. One is called Horse Licks and the other one is called Green Onions. You've got to check those out. I wasn't expecting a person that I felt like, you know, sometimes when you read a lot of the classics, you felt like they were all like very serious. And some of the stories are very serious when you look at like Hell's Green or like Inner Grove. But he also has a very funny side to him and also a very sad side to him that really feel bad for this person. So yeah, just a, a wide range of stories. Um, so I highly recommend you to check these out. For today, Murder in the Age of Enlightenment. And also I would kind of like just sneak this one in, Rashomon and 17 other stories. Sadie is laughing at me because that's kind of what I do. Just sneak more in. Okay, I feel like we all do it. We all do it. 
Well, thank you so much, Virginia. Um, I think I have said before, I'm not a huge short story reader, but those all sound really, really interesting. So, all right. It is time for us to move on to our existential question for today. And today we're going to be talking about New Year's resolutions, but not in the way that you might think. I'm not going to be asking my book friends what their resolutions are or if they have resolutions. I'm more curious as to what they think about resolutions. What are your thoughts on resolutions? Do you make them every year? Do you absolutely hate them? I'm, I'm just curious uh, kind of what, what you think about New Year's resolutions. Um, Al, do you have any strong feelings uh, for or against? I don't necessarily have strong feelings about New Year's resolutions, but I know that I, I've i stopped making them after years and years of making resolutions and failing to keep them. I just, I've stopped making them because I know myself. And if I'm going to make a decision to change something, the middle of winter is not a great time to do it. It's It's when the seasonal depression is hitting hardest. It's right after the holidays when you're tired and you're broke and you're sad. It's just, it's not a good time to be making big life changes, in my opinion. So, yeah, I just, I'm not a huge resolutions person. If other people want to do them, more power to you. I hope that you're able to do something great. I hope that you're able to stick to your resolution. But I know that for me, it just doesn't happen. That is completely fair. And that that's a very interesting point you make, actually, that uh, it isn't like I understand why it happens at the time it does. But if you think about everything else that is happening or has happened around that time of year, it is it is a, like I said, not maybe not the best time to make big life decisions. <laughs> All right, Virginia, what about you? How do you feel about resolution? I, I don't dislike them. I, I don't think I've ever made one in my life. But I understand the value of them, I guess, for some people like Elsa. And I think I like the idea of planning and just kind of thinking about, oh, you know, this is what I plan to do. <laughs> like, I like that. And I think also sometimes, like, I think the value of it, too, is before you actually decide what goals you want to take or decide, you know, what kind of plans you want to make, is that reflection that you did beforehand, you're like, oh, you know, like, I really haven't really done a lot of this or like, I've done too much of this or like, you know, oh, maybe I should start doing some, like, is that that you kind of like, you go through that and then you're like, okay, like, you know, I'm going to do this this year. And I think just even just having that reflection throughout the year, you're like, oh yeah, I remember like you're thinking about like, you know, I think just like making yourself stop and maybe think a little bit about what happened in the past year and what you may may want to consider making a change or anything like that. I think it's just the idea of it. Again, I don't do them, but like I feel like I can see the value of them. And I would love to meet a person who tells me that they they make them and they follow them through. Because every time we, you know, you hear people talk about it, it's always just like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I did it. But you know. 15 days later, it's like, yeah, not quite working out. So how about you, Sadie? I've, I've had a weird love-hate relationship with resolutions for a while. Um, I think I got really jaded when I worked at a gym for six years and we would get the surge in January. It was one of our busiest times of the year, January and September were always the busiest times. And it was insanely busy. And you would see all these people and they were so excited and they were so motivated and then come March, it was dead. And come April, they were all coming in, getting mad that they didn't pay for their memberships for the past four months and hadn't used them once. And so I think that that made me 
really dislike resolutions, um, at least for myself, not in, in, in that way, not for other people. I always supported other people, but it, it kind of made me not like the idea of kind of setting a resolution and having to hold myself accountable to that kind of idea that I had at the beginning of the year. But I, I, I've come back a little bit from my full jadedness. And this year I've chosen, I have kind of set resolutions, but I've chosen more um, achievable goals, such as I have a blank wall on one place in my apartment that as soon as we take our Christmas tree down every year, it makes me realize how blank that wall is. And so my resolution this year is to put something there, to get a picture and put it there. <laughs> so I've, I've chosen to focus on uh, more achievable things. And I think that that has made me not hate resolutions as much as I used to. Um, but yeah, I think that they can be very uh, useful for people. I think they can be more very motivational for people. And as you said, Virginia, I, I also really like the idea of planning. And so I think that, that that aspect of them for myself as well as for a lot of other people is probably one of the draws, not just kind of saying, I'm going to do this and then looking at the failure or success rate, but actually kind of focusing on the planning of it and and things like that. I think that's what it is. I think you, the right way to do it is like just to find those little things, right? Like, you know, because I think we all have really grand goals and that's why they fail all the time because nobody could. But like, it's like, you know, if I say, oh, I'm going to like put something on the wall, like, you know, do that. <laughs> check in with me in December and see. Yeah, oh, we will We will check back in with you, Sadie. We yeah, will yeah, check in. Or check we'll it. just keep giving you stuff that potentially could go on a wall. I like that. And then you can just see which one. Yeah, we'll just fill your wall up with stuff. So everybody give Sadie stuff that you can hang on a wall. Perfect. I love it. All right. Well, thank you both for sharing. We're going to go to our final book today. Al, which murder book did you bring us? All right. Well, I've actually brought a book that kind of ties tangentially into the idea of resolutions. At the very least, all of the characters in this book have made a very strong resolution. And the book that I am talking about today is Murder Your Employer by Rupert Holmes. And before I talk about it, can I just say I love this cover? It's beautiful. It's got embossed lettering. It's got these like raised roses. It's got beautiful patterns. And I just I really like the cover. So yes, this book takes place at the McMaster's Conservatory for the Applied Arts. The arts applied being those of murder. Yes, this is a novel about a university for the murderous arts, a secret school whose students must come to them with a single person they want to delete in the school's parlance, and whose graduation comes when they carry out their thesis, that is, the plan to get rid of their target. The aspiring homicidalist must answer four questions before their target can be accepted. Number one, is this murder necessary? Number two, have you given your target every last chance to redeem themselves? Number three, what innocent person might suffer by your actions? And number four, will this deletion improve the life of others? If the answers to one, two, and four are yes, and the answer to three is as minimal as possible, then the target is accepted and the student may begin their work. This book follows three students at the McMaster's Conservatory for the Applied Arts. There is Dulcie Moan, aka Doria May, a film star who has been blacklisted by her production company for an ill-considered affair. There is Gemma Lindley, a medical assistant who is being blackmailed by her supervisor. 
And finally, the main character whom we follow for most of the book's time is Clifford Cliff Iverson, an aerospace engineer who lost his job after realizing that his boss had made changes to one of his designs that could result in people dying. While Dulcie and Gemma both applied and were accepted of their own volition, Cliff is a scholarship student. Sponsored by a wealthy but anonymous donor, he is brought to McMaster's after a failed attempt to kill his target, in the hopes that he will learn the skills he needs to succeed at his next attempt. Of course, if he fails out of McMaster's, he won't be trying again, as flunking out of McMaster's also means flunking out of life itself. The first half of this book takes place at the McMaster's Conservatory for the Applied Arts itself, following Cliff, Dulcie, and Gemma's studies, as well as their interactions with some of their fellow students. Cliff finds himself almost immediately in a bit of a rivalry with Simeon Sampson, a fellow student who is a top student at the school. Gemma is assigned a seemingly impossible task to befriend and become trusted by another student, Jed Hellkampf, who seems to be a sociopathic monster who perhaps should not have been accepted to the school in the first place, because her own plan for her thesis involves befriending and luring her blackmailer to a place where she can meet her demise. Dulcie, on the other hand, does not see a lot of screen time in this portion of the book, mostly appearing as a side character or in flashbacks explaining why she is at the school. The second half of the book follows the students as they attempt to execute their thesis projects, and I won't go into too much detail here for fear of giving you listeners too many spoilers. This is a fun book, with lots of dark humor, a bit of a whimsical tone at times, weirdly enough. When I read the author's biography and found out that not only is he a writer of novels, but also a writer of musicals, this tonality made a lot more sense to me. There's an element of theatricality to this novel that I found immensely enjoyable, and I'm also a fan of musicals, so there might be some crossover there. Rupert Holmes has written the book for the musical Curtains and the entirety of the Tony Award-winning The Mystery of Edwin Drood. He's also won the Edgar Award for the Mystery Writers of America twice. The coolest and perhaps most random thing that he is known for, which threw me for a loop, is that he is the writer of the number one multi-platinum hit classic song, Escape, the Pina Colada song. I know, right? I know. This book also has got some beautiful illustrations by Anna Luizos, a scenic designer for Broadway shows, who I imagine Rupert Holmes got to know through his musical connections. I almost wish there were more of her illustrations in the novel, as aside from the map of the school printed on the end pages, there are maybe only eight to ten illustrations in the whole nearly 400-page book. I wonder if she also designed the cover, which, as I mentioned at the beginning, I absolutely love. But back to the book. I really enjoyed this read, and though I think it front-loaded a lot of exposition that slows down the first half of the book a little, it really picks up by the second half. It's an enjoyable, rollicking ride, and if you're a fan of mystery with a little humor or want to see academia poked fun at a bit, you'll probably have a good time with this novel. While reading it, I thought that it might be good for fans of the television shows like Pushing Daisies or The Umbrella Academy, as its dark subject matter is leavened quite well with humor and quirky characters. So if you're a fan of either of those shows, you might also want to pick this up. So yeah, today that was Murder Your Employer by Rupert Holmes. That is awesome. I love that random trivia tidbit. That's so good. <laughs> Wonderful. I think that I'm going to, I don't know if I will read that book, but I'm going to recommend it to my husband because I think that he would absolutely love it. So thank you, Al, for, for bringing that book to us. And best title ever. Just the title itself. How can you not read it? I know. I saw it and I was like, I need to pick this up immediately. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much to Virginia and to Al today uh, for bringing us your murder books. And uh, to our listeners, I am curious um, what what you think about resolutions um, or if you have any resolutions. So let us know um, in the chat on uh, the Facebook uh, video or feel free to send us an email. Or if you have any good murder books that you have read recently, we would always love to hear about them. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening to another episode of Keep It Fictional. We will see you all next time. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.